0: The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men whom are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they're going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Almighty God, as we come before you, we thank you that you want us to live lives that are free. You want us to live lives that are beautiful, lives that flourish in the ways that you have designed us to flourish. And so God, as we listen to these words, we ask that you would open our hearts, soften us, and help us to hear your voice that we might live in the light of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a a medical researcher by the name of Jonas Salk who made a statement a number of years ago, um, pretty profound, pretty uh, bold. It goes like this. He said, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth within 50 years, all life on earth would end. And then he goes on to say, but if all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. That's an astounding claim. And I don't know, there are smarter people in the room who might quibble with the scientific facts or the, 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 the veracity of a statement like that. But I think from a, just a, a sociological theological, spiritual perspective, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement because human beings, I, I think we all know this, human beings can be amazing, can be beautiful, can do incredible things, and at the same time, we can be incredibly messy and difficult beings. We exploit. We terrorize. We tear down. People make a mess, and we get stuck In our messes. And what we see in this text is an acknowledgement of that fact, of that very dark and gloomy understanding about human nature, but also an insistence that in the face of that very harsh and difficult reality, God is always making a way out. What do we learn in this text? There's lots of dramatic events unfolding. I think I want to invite you to just think about this very, very uh, tension-filled, drama-filled narrative through the lens of just this statement, that in the place of no way out, God is always making a way. And that as he does that work of making a way through the the places in our lives where there seems to be no way out, that chains of bondage give way. new bonds of friendship. Let's just break that statement down into two parts, and we'll look at it in, in, in a movement from the first part to the second. The first part is this, that we all find ourselves, including the characters in the story, at one point or another in the course of living our lives in the world, in a place where there seems like there is no way out. We are so good at making prisons for ourselves and for other people. We live in a world adept at building prisons. Mass incarceration is just a daily reality for so many people in our world. Brian Stevenson, perhaps uh, no person has done more incisive, more insightful work to help us understand the epidemic of mass incarceration in our world today, and Brian Stevenson, in his book *Just Mercy*, talks about how just how inundated our society is with prisons. And he talks about the fact that in the 1970s, there were somewhere around 300,000 people in the prison systems across this country. And then in the early 2010s or so, he says that that number had grown to over 2 million. That is an amazing rate of growth in just a few short decades. He talks about the fact that we've institutionalized policies that reduce people to their worst acts and permanently label them criminal, murderer, rapist, thief, drug dealer, sex offender, felon, identities they cannot change regardless of the circumstances of their crimes or any improvements they might make in their lives. Not only has the number of prisoners in our, in our nation uh, just mushroomed, exploded over the past few decades, but he also talks about the, the, the kind of economic structures that have formed around the prison industrial complex. And so he talks about, again, in the 1970s, approximately $6.9 billion that went into investing in building this, this landscape of prisons in this nation. And by the 2010s, that number had grown to $80 billion. $80 billion poured into putting people into chains into walls that they cannot escape, into making sure that our society will be so-called safe. I think it's hard for us in uh, in today's world to imagine a world without prisons, and yet Michelle Alexander in her book um, uh, The New Jim Crow talks about the state of mind that prevailed in the 1970s she actually says, and, and this just blew me away because it seems so far-fetched, like a completely different world, which it was back then in the 1970s, but she says that back then, it was sort of the, it was, it was academically um, accepted. In fact, the best researchers came to the conclusion that the fading away of prisons in our nation, in our culture, was not far away. She says that these days, activists who advocate, who advocate a world without prisons are often dismissed as quacks. But only a few decades ago, the notion that our society would be much better off without prisons and that the end of the prisons was more or less inevitable not only dominated mainstream academic discourse in the field of criminology, but also inspired a national campaign by reformers demanding a moratorium on prison construction. Can you imagine that? A moratorium on prison construction. And yet the reality today is that we live in a world adept at building prisons. Prisons for other people, for people who cross, uh, uh, who transgress the rules, the norms that we set up for our society. But it's also true that we live in a world In our own world, we don't have to think about the prison industrial complex. We inhabit worlds of our own making that have all kinds of prisons, all kinds of chains that fetter us down, that tie us down. What this text teaches us is that there are many varieties of prison. You don't have to be imprisoned to live a life constricted, constrained. This text teaches us through characters like Lydia, which is in the first half of chapter 16, through this slave girl and through this jailer, that there are people who live lives bound, chained, in ways that they can't explain in ways that they can't transcend. We think about the story of Lydia. We have to go back to last week's text. But let me just refer to her quickly, and then we'll move on with, with the slave girl and the jailer. Lydia was a person who was from the colony, of, who lives in the colony of Philippi. This is the colony where Paul and his associates are doing missionary work. She is from Thyatira, which is a land that was conquered. It's very possible that Lydia was at one point in her life a refugee, a refugee of war, a refugee of imperial conquest, of the Roman Empire, destroying and displacing and, disp- and dispossessing her people. And here she is in, in the text in Acts chapter 16, relatively successful Because she's a householder. She has somehow managed to to lift herself up by her bootstraps. And she has made a life for herself. She has she has a thriving business. She has created, she has made a a reputation for, for herself. And she's able to get by in this world. And yet there is a longing in her heart for something more. She is a spiritual seeker, even though to everyone else, she looks like she has arrived. Deep in her heart, she knows that there are chains she must transcend, that there are questions nagging at her, that there are ways in which her life feels incomplete. And then in our text today, we, see, we hear about this slave girl, the slave girl who follows after Paul and his friends, nagging him day after day. This slave girl who is exploited, for her gifts, her gifts that come by way of her oppression, by evil spirits. And her owners, her masters, have found a way to monetize her suffering and her misery. And I want you to just enter the, the, the world of this slave girl who was so oppressed who is so exploited and at the same time somehow manages to to just muster every ounce of strength and agency in her to cry out. To cry out. To cry out that she sees something in Paul and his associates and she goes after them and she says, these men have access to a truth. To an understanding, to a spirituality, to a way of seeing the world that will bring about salvation. And yes, it's twisted. And yes, it's covered by some kind of demonic possession, according to the, the writer of this text, Luke. And it's annoying to the Apostle Paul. And yet she is doing something. She is doing something that would bring about her liberation. She is clever. She is exercising agency. Now, I think part of the reason why uh, the evil spirit allows her to say these words about the Apostle Paul is uh, he sees the ways in which it's irksome to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is annoyed by this day after day after day, her following, her clamoring, her, her yelling these things about, her, about, about the Apostle Paul and his friends. And there's something about her ability to cry out that brings about her liberation in the end. And then there is this jailer, this jailer who is in power over the Apostle Paul and over all the other prisoners, who is a slave to duty, who lives a life imprisoned by the fear of failure. And in the course of this text, in the course of this story, we will see that his worst fears come to pass. And he is on the verge of despair. He is on the verge of suicide. You see, we live in a world where people like Lydia, like this slave girl, like this jailer, their lives are very common. When we hear their stories, maybe you can relate. Maybe there are ways in which you live lives that on the outside look unfettered, like you are successful, and yet there is a deep longing for something more in your heart. Maybe there are ways in which you have circumstances that seem impossible to escape. And despite despite all the the evidence to the contrary, you feel like this slave girl imprisoned with no way out. Or maybe you have some power, you have some success, and you have the ability to, to strut about in this world like this jailer, and yet you feel imprisoned by the fear of failure. You see, we live in a world that abounds with chains, chains of bondage. We live in a world with all kinds of frustrations, frustrations that inc- that impinge upon our freedom, our ability to live lives the ways that we want to. It makes me think of a time when um, I was, uh, this was the summer after college, and uh, my parents were in the course of a move, we were living in Southern California at the time, and uh, my dad, who Uh, was a pastor in ministry, Uh, received a call from his denomination to move to the East Coast to plant a church in New Jersey. And it was an exciting time for our family, at least for my parents. And um, they were out there in the summer, and my dad had made the move first. And he was at a conference, and then I flew in the day after he flew out and he left the keys with our neighbor, and um, I went next door, got the keys to the house, the car. I had a week of freedom as a young college student in a new place, and I remember that night just driving around New Jersey, and just happening upon uh, the very edge of the the state where you could sort of, uh, there was some place in Palisades Park or some place close to the Hudson River where I could catch a glimpse of the New York City skyline. And I was just, it just blew my breath away. Because I had grown up in Southern California. I had grown up in L.A., and I thought the L.A. skyline was kind of an impressive thing. And then when you see the New York skyline, I I saw it in the movies growing up, and I knew how big it was, but to see it in person, and I remember just thinking to myself, I have to get myself there. And so I said, tomorrow, tomorrow I will go to that magical place. And so I went back home. And I, this, you have to understand, this is the, these are the days before you know, widespread um, availability of GPS and smartphones and things like that, so what I had to do was go to the back of the phone book and tear out you know, the pages of maps that were back there, and I just kind of pieced together the fact that, okay, if I could, if I could get into Manhattan through the Holland Tunnel, make my way up to the George Washington Bridge, did the distance, it was about 12 miles. Made, I circled all the sites I wanted to visit, like uh, back, this is in the early 90s, so the Twin Towers are still there, still around, um, the New York Public Library, Times Square, Lincoln Square. I mean, made note of Central Park, all the places I would like to visit, see. And I thought to myself, okay, 12 miles, maybe an hour or two, <laughs> at most three. I mean, I'll have a nice leisurely drive to the city of Manhattan, and then I can enjoy the rest of the day doing doing something else. So so I'm making this drive in, emerge out of the Holland Tunnel, and immediately I am attacked with a man holding a bottle of blue liquid and a newspaper in the other hand, and he immediately gets to work on my windshield, wiping it down. I had never seen this before, right? But he he gets it amazingly crystal clear. I very grudgingly, and also because I'm kind of afraid, uh, give him a big, you know, a big tip, making my way to New York City. And then I'm, one of the things that you have to realize is uh, the city is filled with one-way streets. I was not used to this. So many times I turned the corner only to see my life flashing before my eyes <laughs> because there were these cars, these angry New York City drivers coming at me. Oh, boy, and especially those yellow cabs, I mean, they're no joke, right? Like, those guys were angry and mean, and I remember at one point I was uh, driving up one of the avenues, and one of the things about the avenues is, like, there are no lanes. You kind of have to make your own lane. And so I'm driving, I'm feeling self-conscious about uh, my California license plate on this green Taurus that my dad has. And I'm just making my way, and I'm having a really, really hard time, and then finally, I make it to the George Washington Bridge, and cross over, and let me tell you, Fort Lee never looked so beautiful to any human eyes. I mean, it was uh, was such a sight for sore eyes. And all told, I looked at my watch. You know how long it took me? Close to eight hours. Eight hours. You know what, eight, where eight hours can get you in California, you can go from L.A. to San Francisco, right? And it, even fighting through L.A. traffic in eight hours. Now, fast forward a couple of weeks, my sister is visiting, and she wants to go to New York City, and I tell her, well, we're not going to drive, we're going to take the bus, public trans- transportation is great in the city, and we're just, we have a great day, and at the end of the day, we go up the Empire State Building, um, and, we're, and, and I'm looking down on the city, and what I see from way up there just blows, blows my mind. Because what I see way down there, what I had experienced to be such chaos just a few weeks ago, way down there below, like way up there above the clouds, close to the clouds, what I see, a perfect grid pattern, north, south, east, west, and those yellow calves that were so menacing just a few weeks ago, they're like, they're like little ants just crawling around. Like little ants that I could flick with my fingers. Way down there. And it's such a picture of what the life of faith can be sometimes. You know, sometimes we find ourselves trapped. We find ourselves struggling We find ourselves, we feel like our lives are being impinged upon. We're threatened around every turn. And life is so hard. It's so filled with hardship. We don't know. It seems like there is no way out. We don't know how we're going to make it. We don't know how it is that we're going to survive. There are no answers in view. There is is no sense we can make of the life that we have before us. And yet, God... Comes to us, and God says to us in a text like this that from where He sits, from where He views our life, our circumstances, our struggles, things make sense. That there's a way through the thicket of despair, that there is a way that He sees that we can't see, that we can't comprehend in our wildest imagination. And this is what we see in the text. God is making a way in a world abounding with chains of bondage. What he is doing in this text, in this story, is he is creating new bonds of friendship. And here's what I want you to see in the text. The only people who are truly free in this story are the ones who are falsely falsely arrested, beaten, and jailed. The only, the only people who are truly free in this text are the ones who are harassed and oppressed and imprisoned. And somehow, because they have a sightline to God, they are able to, in the midst of their present circumstances, sing a song of hope in the darkness of the night. And their singing is so contagious. Their singing is so contagious that there's an earthquake. And in the aftermath of the earthquake, there is a jailer. Now we have to skip through some of the details for the sake of time, but let me just point out to you that there is a jailer cleaning the wounds of his prisoners. That after these imprisoned, these falsely imprisoned, people who are suffering in the hands of injustice, that there is a, a jailer cleaning, binding up the wounds of the imprisoned, and then there is a baptismal service, and then there is a, a feast in the night, in the middle of the night. In the darkness that covers the land and every other household in this place, in the home of the jailer, there is a feast and there is food and there is wine and there is drink and there is merrymaking and there is fellowship, there is conversation. Maybe there is even laughter because of the hope that this jailer has found in the faith of these who are oppressed, falsely imprisoned. Dear friends, in the place where there seems to be no way, we see in this text a God who is making a way, who is making a way in such delightful and unexpected ways that there is singing in the night, that there is a feast in the middle of the night. There is a transformation, a transformation where the chains of bondage give way to new bonds of friendship. For people who sat across a seemingly impassable chasm just hours ago, who, for them, it seemed like there was no reconciliation. It seemed like there was no way for them to come together. It seemed like there was no way for them to be family or friends. And somehow, in the midst of this dark night, there is a party that gets thrown. And there are people coming together in friendship, in fellowship. At the end of our passage, the very last verse, you know what it says in the very last verse of Acts chapter 16? That when Paul and his friends are released from prison, you know what they do? They go to the home of Lydia and they encourage, and you have to catch this, and you have to catch how shockingly unexpected this is because they're in a foreign place. They're in a foreign place where they know nobody. They're in a foreign place as Jews as Jews who are being targeted for their Jewish ethnicity and religion, they're in a foreign place where there aren't even 10 Jewish males to constitute a synagogue. This is why they keep looking for a place of prayer. They're in this foreign land where they have no one like them, and they go to the home of Lydia, a place that they were so reluctant to enter. In the first half of this story in Acts chapter 16, they go to this place and then they encourage their brothers and their sisters, we are told. Dear friends, what happens in Acts chapter 16? In the place of chains, in the the place of bondage, in the place where there are chains of bondage abounding, there is a giving way, a giving way, a making a pathway to bonds, to new bonds of friendship. It reminds me of a character in Eugene O'Neill's play, The Great God Brown, who asks a question of searing insight and pain. And I want want you to hear these words and see if you can relate. He says, Why am I afraid to dance, I who love music and rhythm and grace and song and laughter? Why am I afraid to live, I who love life and the beauty of flesh and the living colors of the earth and sky and sea? Why am I afraid to love, I who love, love? Why am I afraid, I who am not afraid? Why must, I so, why must I be so ashamed of my strength, so proud of my weakness? And now listen to these words. Why must I live in a cage like a criminal, defying and hating, I who love peace and friendship? Dear friends, it's a taunting, but perhaps, relevant questions for us to ask of ourselves. And let me ask you a different set of questions. Dear friends, why do you wrap chains of bondage around your lives, you, who were made for freedom? Why do you cling so closely to that ball and chain of fear and resentment, you who love joy and laughter? Why do you bind the ones you love, you who are God's beloved? Why so downcast, you who are children of the light? Why so fearful of death, you who follow a resurrected Lord? Why so protective of your small plot of ground on this earth when the creator of the universe longs to be the lover of your soul? Dear friends, are you stuck in a world of chains? Hear the good news. The one that turns chains of bondage into new bonds of friendship and family is here calling to you. Hands open in invitation to you. And the same spirit who is upon Jesus The same spirit who is upon Jesus to speak, to declare these words, is upon you. To proclaim good news to the poor. It is he who sends us out to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for prisoners. It is the same spirit who is at work in you, dear friends to proclaim the Lord's favor for a world dwelling in chains and darkness. This is the good news. This is the good news of freedom for all. Let us pray. Loving God, bind up our broken hearts. Release us from the chains of our own making And help us to walk. No, to run. To run wild and free and joyfully and resolutely in the way of Jesus. Amen. Amen.